Good morning, diners and travelers. You're listening to On the Menu with Anne and Peter Haig. And, and, and guess what? What? Anne said, Peter, what's the theme for today's program? In fact, she said, Rabbit, what's the theme for today's program? <laughs> That's a story for another day. And the, the answer is there isn't one. Yeah. This is called put put a number of outstanding <laughs> tracks in in the blender, <laughs> mix them up together, and see which one comes out on top. Well, we we do have a good one coming out on top because it's our old friend J. P. McMahon, uh, who is uh, Mr. Galway. He's an ambassador for the cultural identity of Ireland and all kinds of other things. And uh, I guess we just last saw him in. Um, Bill Bow, actually, and we talk, the and world's fifty best. And we talked we talked to him just a day or so about, ago about an event that he's been championing championing yes. for about five years called Food on the Edge. Yes. And I I guess we should just let JP explain what it's all about. JP McMahon is um he's Mr. Eat Galway is what he is, but he is the, the founder and director of, of Food on the Edge, which is a conference that we're going to be attending this year, 2018. Um, JP, give us a little background on this. Uh, it was originally introduced in what year, and it really was pr- introduced to promote Irish food and uh, products, right? Yeah, it was. Uh, we started in 2015. That was the first year, and we brought about 50 chefs from all over the world um, to to speak to an audience of about uh, about 300 odd. But that was the that was the first uh, the first year. But I suppose its basic aims were one was to promote um, Irish food and the I suppose the many different products that um, that are produced in Ireland, and the other one was I suppose introducing Ireland to all of these. Um, Chefs who are um, a lot of them who are, I suppose, uh, uh, of a caliber uh, of their own and um, are, are world class in themselves. Right. Well, you and I talked at the uh, um, Fifty Best in uh, um, Bilbao earlier this year about it. But you, I wanted a final report just before the conference. Give us the dates, and um, and it's in Galway, right? Yeah, so it's in Galway this this year, and it's on the the twenty first and twenty second of um, the Monday and Tuesday of October, and uh, it's on up in the, the we're hold the, hold we're on, having it in the college this year. Hold on, hold on a minute, you got your numbers wrong. Right, I thought so too. Oh, twenty second, twenty third, is it? Yeah, twenty second, twenty third. Yeah, but, but ah, twenty first, twenty second is uh, next year. Sorry, someone. Uh, you better show up on time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, no, Sorry, you can ask me that one again. You and I were talking about just how many of these uh, symposia, uh, conferences, uh, gatherings are, there are across the world. Um, so do there are you, indeed so many of them now, yeah. And, and you said you, you were questioning the effectiveness. But you're very serious about sometimes this. Sometimes you do. I mean, sometimes it's quite gratuitous when... Um, Everyone comes together, and you you have a small band of chefs and audience, and we have about 600 people in total attend the event. And I suppose sometimes the question how effective uh, 600 people can be in terms of some of the larger global issues. And uh, I suppose, unfortunately, there isn't an alternative to uh, 
uh, to it other than, I suppose, trying to bring people together, uh, different influencers to try and promote change or try and um, instigate it. So, um, I mean, I keep doing it because I have faith in the project, but um, I do understand the, the shortcomings and the difficulties, particularly when there's a lot of them. And I know from the art world, um, sometimes with all the biennales, sometimes chefs could just be traveling from one conference to another conference, and then where does that leave uh, time to actually uh, do the things that you're talking about, you know? Yeah, well, I don't know how some, like Massimo Bottura, I don't know how he gets around like that. <laughs> I know, it's, and it's difficult. To, the difficulty is the, the, mo- the higher profile you get, the more people want to listen to you speak, the more right. um, influence you have, and it's exactly. almost like a like you get on the wheel and you, you can't get off of it and it's, it's, it's a difficult one because you have a lot of influence a lot of people listen to you but at the same time if you can't get off that wheel every now and again to, to do things then uh, that's, that's, where, um, that's where the difficulty is yeah, well, Now you talk about um, the motivation for starting this um, have you seen any major impact so far with this um, the conference the symposium I mean, I know when I first was exposed to Irish food products, I was just blown away. Yeah, 100%. I mean, certainly over the last, say, four years or so, or the five years of, of, of um, preparing uh, Food on the Edge, we've, certainly the, a lot of the Irish chefs who have come to it go away with a greater appreciation of their own product and also a greater confidence. I mean, a lot of people that come to Ireland understand we have a good product, but it's often internally we haven't been the best at promoting our own food. And we're always looking to other countries and other nations like France and Italy and looking at their food saying, oh, I wish we had their food. But I suppose for me, one of the points of Food in the Edge was that I had traveled and I had seen and tasted other food and I realized that well, we had amazing products and we had, a, I suppose, a... Um, um, uh, a food culture to be proud of and that we needed to explore that. And so I've certainly seen internally a lot more confidence. And then I suppose internationally a lot more people um, talk about Ireland now they, that they who have attended Food on the Edge or who have heard about it. So it really has um, put Ireland and Galway on the international map, so to speak, in terms of uh, food influences or people and people thinking about food. Now, now, you yourself have restaurants. Your, your group is Eat Galway Restaurant Group, and we've eaten, I guess, in two of them, um, Anair and uh, I can't remember what the other one was. Cava. Cava, right. We, we have not yet. We'll remedy that at Tartar Cafe and Wine Bar. Yeah. And, but you also, uh, I, didn't, uh, I don't think I knew that you ran a cookery school as well. We do. I run a cookery school on Sundays and Mondays when Anir is closed. Um, we usually do two Sunday classes uh, a month, and then we do we run a six-week class on Monday evenings. We do four of them a year, and I thought they're all part of the, the educational program that is Anir in terms of promoting Irish food and promoting um, our, our food culture and getting people to realize that food is... Um, more than just about eating when you're hungry. Sometimes it's uh, about pleasure or connecting with your past or your history and that. And that's what we, I suppose, we do. Well, we do it all through the act of cooking. And it doesn't have to be anything complex. Sometimes it could be simple as making uh, making brown bread. But, I mean, every time you engage with um, with food, you're you're engaging with um, a past tradition. Now, on the, on the Food on the Edge program, you, you have talks, I guess, talks between groups of people 
and and uh, speakers who are themselves top top of their game in the food business. Yeah. And, and then and then I think I saw on the program you also have some demonstrations, some some classes. Yeah, we have that's a new element this year. We have a, we have four or five master classes, and really what I wanted to try and do was, I mean, we have three or four hundred people in the audience, and for me that's that's a big number for to, to communicate to. And so what we wanted to do was to try and put on some smaller, more intimate master classes for about fifty people, and some of them would be a little bit more demonstrative, or some might just be talks as well. But it was just a way to get a smaller number of people to engage with that chef's philosophy, say, Matt Orlando and speaking about waste, and to really be able to ask him questions about the practicality of these things and how do you go about these things, because that's really where I think you can affect change in the greatest way. I mean, it's one thing addressing a crowd, and, and you might get 10 practitioners um, after talking to 300, but really if you, if you spend half an hour with someone and you're talking about their waste program and, and how you go about that, then I think hopefully that that will infiltrate and um, disseminate into the Irish food industry. Now, you, you've declared a certain number of themes. Um, I was, of course, you just mentioned one of the things that's new on the program this year. But the themes that I got for 2018 are bullet conversations, food stories, food waste, Action, reaction, and food education. Could you break that down into specific concepts for us? Yeah, I suppose what we did the year, the first year we did Food in the Age, our, our overall theme was the future of food, and then the second year we did um, Food Story. And I suppose what I wanted to do, rather than dropping last year's theme, I wanted to invite speakers to, if they wanted to pick, uh, draw on any of the themes from previous years, and we introduced the new, the new one that was Conversations, where we have people speaking together. Um, the future of food is, is, I suppose, when, when speakers want to address something that they think is a critical issue, such as food waste or food security. Uh, food story, for me, is when uh, you have a speaker po- uh, possibly from a different food culture, and they want to talk about their food story. And that could be from, like, a, a street hawker in Singapore, or it could be a Michelin star chef. It could be from anywhere how they got to where they got to and, and how their food story played into that. Uh, food waste has, has been, an, has been a, I suppose, a recurring issue since since yes. the, the very, very beginning, right. and I don't think it's going to going to go away. And I think every year more and more speakers seem to seem to address it. Um, one of the other ones, as well as food education, was um, was mental health came up a lot last year. Oh yeah, and we just it, it, even though it wasn't a major major, it wasn't a team and anyone speak, but it was just in everybody's talk was about the stability of the industry in what terms of. Um, whether balance the gender balance in the kitchens or on the floor or also in the the I suppose the the, the health of the chefs from working yeah, uh, working so much and that, that was really questioned and I, I do think you see small changes happening in various um, various restaurants around the world that are trying to make their industry more sustainable because I don't know if it's it's probably the same in America but we have less people wanting to become chefs. Every year, um, yeah, there's a shortage. The figures just came out again uh, from uh, in Ireland this year, and there is um, there is less uh, less people taking up the the courses. So the numbers are down. So how do you encourage 
people to uh, to become chefs. I mean, it is um, I suppose it is a um, a difficult um, uh, path, particularly when you have the likes of uh, tech companies offering uh, just about everything to uh, young uh, graduates. So it's it's a difficult one to compete with, and um, that's why I mean that's why the issue of immigration is so important. I mean, if if we then and we need to have more porous borders because I think that we have most of the chefs in my kitchens now are not Irish, you know. And yeah, that's well, the same uh, in the tell, as well. tell us about that. We're in the Trump area here in the United States, and, no, no. and I mean, and in England with the Brexit, I mean. <laughs> I mean, pretty soon there won't be anybody working in restaurants, not just the chefs. Well, no, that, that's, that's, I mean, that, that is one of the issues. I mean, if I there's less and less Irish people wanting to become chefs, then we are dependent on foreigners who come into the country who want to be chefs. And, I mean, I don't really care what um, nationality someone is. If they want to cook, I, I think they should be allowed to cook. And I think it's very, very important. I mean, one of the colleges... Um, in Donegal, I think, had of, of 80, 80 places, it had 12 applications. Jeez. I mean, that's very, very worrying. If, if, they, if they're a thousand short a year, then uh, then they have 12 Irish people apply for those posts. So I really think there are enough um, uh, unemployed um, uh, immigrants who are stuck within the in the system that they're not allowed work. I mean, plenty of them could be giving uh, could be given uh, educational opportunities. Yeah, it's terrible. It doesn't make any sense, does it? No, no, it, no, no. I mean, and then we still have a. I, I'm sure you have it in the states as well. We have a when someone is waiting for um, citizenship or waiting for. Um, uh, uh, natu- to be naturalized, they're not allowed work. So you right. can spend three years stuck in the system yeah. and, and, and not be allowed work. And so uh, there, we need to we need to change those, um, those those the laws of direct provision where they come into the country, they're seeking asylum, and then you could get stuck in that system. And w- uh, one person that I was talking to was stuck in it for six years. And the, I think it's very de- demoralizing. And then it's also you have the issues of the, the person's mental health. And if we if we have all these courses. Um, that they're not being filled. I think they're, they're, it's, it's, we should be looking at it, you know. Now, it's not, it's not true that late invitees are Boris Johnson and Theresa May. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'd say that's a, they're, they're, they're funny old people. I just, I think, yeah, they were either, I don't know, appealing to the populist vote or appealing to uh, people who really, uh, who are afraid. I mean, that's the only two things I can see because... I mean, for for a country like Ireland that has like 15 million Irish passports all over the world, I mean, the whole world is full of Irish immigrants, you know. Yeah. And so it's important for us to to uh, to to open up. I mean, the population of Ireland is half of what it used to be uh, 150 years ago. So we can't say we don't have any space for people because the population used to be nine million and it's only five million now. So. I mean, there, there, is, there is plenty of food and plenty of space in the world. Um, we just need to distribute it and allocate that space better. It's not that we're short of food or short of space. We're, 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 I suppose we have a poverty of, of how to get food to people and how to uh, give space to people without upsetting a whole other bunch of people. But it's not that we're short on these things. Now, let's give people some parameters. If, 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 by, now, yes, yes. if by now we've changed their minds and they're about to put... FOTE on their calendar. Uh, let's let's first of all say how you how you get to Galway, and the answer is you fly to Dublin or to Shannon for that matter. You fly du- to Dublin or, Dublin, or Shannon. Dublin, um, Dublin is close yeah. enough, and it's about a two-hour drive to Galway. It's 
It's a two-hour drive on the motorway. You can go. You can drive straight to uh, straight to to Galway. Or if you're coming from the states, you can fly into Shannon, which is an hour from Galway. Um, but sometimes it's easier to fly into easier. For, there's more flights into uh, into Dublin, and then the conference is on the Monday and the Tuesday. It's on from uh, nine to six uh, both days. I mean, there's still plenty of tickets available. On, oh, good. Uh, I was, was going to ask. Who's the edge? Dot ie. Who's on the edge? Dot ie. Dot ie. Okay. Yeah, and uh, yeah, no, I think it's a great networking opportunity, but it's also a great educational opportunity and. It's, it's just a nice coming together of a lot of different people from Ireland and from all over the world and the conversations that you have um, with each other and the conversations that you listen to on stage are, are, are just as important. You know, I, I want to point out that it's a very globally focused conference, even though the intention is uh, centric to Ireland. I mean, you have people on your agenda. I was looking at the speakers. You have chefs from Africa, the Middle East, India, all coming. Yeah, that was impo- really important for me because sometimes, again, these symposiums become very Eurocentric or very uh, centered on North America. And so for me, it's really, really important to try, well, how do we cut through that? Because we have so much to learn from these other countries that can introduce different ways of cooking or different ways of doing food businesses to Ireland. I think it's so important, whether it's Africa, the Middle East, or Asia, I think we have so much to learn uh, from those people. And I think it's really, like, there are chefs everywhere taking part in really exciting food cultures, and I think it's really important to get people that represent them to Ireland to speak. Well, I have uh, gone over the speakers list, and I've highlighted a whole bunch of people that we're going to be interviewing and when we're there at the conference, I don't think you left any out, did you? I, I did, but I can't do all of them. She has, she has them pretty much all checkmarked. But uh, I mean, a, a lot of them have gained recognition, even if they have a restaurant in London, for example. They've gained recognition yeah. because they're representing their own culture, which could be African, it could be Middle Eastern, it could be any of those things. A hundred percent, and that's why sometimes Asian. sometimes what we found is it was difficult. It's difficult to bring chefs from Africa. Um, it's difficult. It's difficult to bring chefs from the Middle East. Also, sometimes due to visa and sometimes due to travel restrictions. And so, what we did was was we looked at places like New York and places like London and other big cities, um, and said, "Well, is there represented? These are people, immigrants living there, who are cooking uh, with their um, with their own um, their own uh, cooking through their own their own culture." So, we have. Um, uh, yeah, we have, we have people um, uh, from uh, representing all over the world. Well, listen, I'm expecting to be having a good time there. Are we going to have lots of good food? Yeah, there will be plenty of food. We have an artisan market again with uh, about 70 Irish producers that will be there on the Monday and Tuesday, and they will be feeding people all day, and then we'll have lunch as well for the delegates, and that will be more producers again, and <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, it's going to be a lovely uh, um, compendium of, uh, of everything that is good about Irish food. How about Irish whiskey? <laughs> uh, there might be a wee bit of that, there'll definitely be a wee bit of that on Tuesday, uh, whiskey and gin, we're going to a whiskey and gin bar uh, for, the, for the closing party, and they're... Uh, so um, they uh, they specialise in, or they have, I don't know how many whiskies and gins they have. The Irish wow. gin has gone through a little revolution as well. So we're, uh, we're, that is on the Tuesday night. So there's entertainment on the Monday and the Tuesday night, and there'll also be a little bit of Irish dancing for people that, uh, that want, to, want to check it out. 
Well, I'm, I'm looking forward to it, and I'm looking forward to seeing you again. Uh, it's been since June, I guess, well, since I saw you, and yeah, you've no, been okay, very busy. Thanks again, and um, 100%. Well, thank you, JP. And we'll be back after a short break. We're taking a different direction then, but you'll find it's just as much fun, so don't go away. Podcasting services for On The Menu Radio are provided by ASP Station, www.aspstation.net. Welcome back. Um, I have been, uh, for a long time, a staunch believer in apple cider vinegar. Um, you're supposed to take a, a spoonful a day. I guess I alternate it with that, all, that cactus yeah. sap. <laughs> Who knows? Well, you, you've, you've, also, you've also been known to take a swig of the pickle juice. Oh, I do love from that. The, from, from the Italian pickles that we get from Whole Foods. Yeah. But anyhow, this is, we're moving aside from the main topic. What we're talking about here is, um, Nicole Bloom and uh, Jonathan Carr own a, an apple cider production, whatever you call it. They, they produce apple cider, apple cider vinegar. What are some of the other products? All kinds of other products have been, and a cookbook, which I find myself referring to over and over again, uh, called the Cider House Cookbook. Cars Cider House is the name of the establishment, and let's listen to Nicole Bloom. Well, we're going to be talking to Nicole Blum. Um, her other half, Jonathan Carr, um, is doing something, but I can't remember what. <laughs> He's probably out picking apples. I shouldn't wonder. Picking apples. Yeah. I mean, it sounds like an ideal, an ideal life on this apple farm and cider making thing. Your your cookbook is Cider House Cookbook, and I love the recipes. We'll talk more about those. And you also set us cider samples because you make cider and cider products. And I wasn't sure when you said you were going to be sending cider products uh, what exactly we were going to get besides cider. But you make, say what you make. We make three things very regularly. We make a cider syrup which is also known as boiled cider. It's a really old-fashioned New England staple, um, and it's just made from from reducing fresh cider before it begins to ferment. So it's just apple juice boiled down until it deeply caramelizes and um, dark and thicker and sweet, but also nice and acidic because, you know, it's the, it's the apple, so yes. everything concentrates the, the sweetness and the acidity. So that's our, I'd say that's our most... Um, popular product, and I certainly think it is, you know, the most versatile. And then we also do a cider vinegar, um, and I think I didn't end up sending that to you, which I, I will get you some, but we were we were out of bottles, um, and that is, you know, it's like a full-bodied um, apple cider vinegar. We keep it raw, and um, it's uh, about 7% acidity, so really, really bold and uh, delicious. And then we do a switchel. Yeah, <laughs> which is, is that's probably the one you're like, what is this? Um, so a lot of people are drinking 
cider vinegar for health and for refreshment. Yeah, I do. um, (laughs) Yeah, yeah, a lot of people do. And switchel is this, you know, old-fashioned haymaker's punch or like this, what people used to bring out when they were haying because it has the refreshing quality of vinegar, which kind of just cuts right through all the thirst. And then it has ginger, so you can chug it without getting a stomach ache. Um, So we make ours, of course, with all apple products, so it's just a... um, vinegar that's been infused with ginger, and then we sweeten it with our cider syrup. And we put all that in a bottle, and you can put a splash in your water or cocktail, and uh, it's very refreshing. A lot of people like to use it kind of as an electrolyte, uh, rejuvenator. And oh, great. Delicious. It's fabulous. Yeah. Now, some, somewhere in your book, you mentioned where Switcher, you think Switcher was invented, but I can't remember where it was. Well, I, it's, a, it's a New England... Um, Is it New England tradition? Yeah, it's a New England tradition, and it's funny because, you know, we've really tried to get, we've tried to nail down the story, like, what is it with, with Switchel? Um, and it's hard to find uh, history on it, but it seems like it probably had a relationship with kind of the, the um, Caribbean islands, and definitely, you know, the vinegar is kind of a pre- Lemon, you know, we don't have, you know, like lemons weren't kind of readily available, but vinegar certainly was from apples. And um, so that kind of gave it that acidity, and I think that's why there was so many popular vinegar things uh, in colonial times. That included uh, like a whole section on um, this Switzel. Switzel and shrubs, and yeah. Is that the book? Yeah, is that the is that the book you're talking about? Yeah, probably. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I can't remember. We interviewed the author. I remember that. Uh-huh. You know, we, we should mention, by the way, that um, your sister is a recipe developer, Andrea, who's on the other, um, on the West Coast. That's right. Yes. And she yeah. worked on this book as well, right? Yeah, she contributed some recipes for this book and um, and... You know, we have definitely a very similar uh, um, feeling and approach to food, simplicity, and she cooks for a living. And so she had, you know, 12, 15 people to cook for every day. So she had a lot of people to kind of bounce ideas off, which is, you know, and try her recipes out on during this during the development period, which is really, really fun and great. Um, now, you're, yeah. in, you're in Massachusetts. Right. We're in Massachusetts. North of Boston. How far north? Well, we're actually west of Boston. Oh, west. So we're in, yeah, we're in western Massachusetts before you get to the Berkshires. So we're in the Pioneer Valley, right between okay. Amherst and, and Northampton. We're in Hadley. No, it's funny. We, we just probably several years ago now, we interviewed someone from Vermont who makes ice wine. Oh, yeah. Right. And I, I wondered, you haven't mentioned that. I wondered if perhaps you make that as well, but maybe you don't. We, ha- we've ha- we have made ice cider before. Um, and we've, um, and then kind of transitioned to like a, the sweeter thing that we had made was the pomo, which is in the, in the book. Yeah. We people how to make that, which is, um, is fortified, um, with apple brandy, not vitamins and minerals, although we can pretend. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, yeah, it's, it's definitely something that is very, um, uh, making ice cider, um, you really want to depend on the weather if you can, but that's, that's been pretty precarious these last years, and we've had some nice oh, yes, winters, but 
Yeah. Um, uh, but not every winter gets cold when we need it to. So oh. we sort of put that aside and we're focusing on very, we focus on very traditional hard cider, um, wild fermented. Uh, we don't spray in our orchard, so the fermentation gets going naturally right away. Uh, nothing to stop it, no fungicides or anything yucky like that. And so we do all natural fermentations here. Um, you know, we don't back sweeten or sulfite or anything like that. So it really is, uh, you know, it's, we take a lot of care to do it, but it, it um, it's pretty hands-off. And well, it's also very important that you do that. And one of the reasons we were drawn to this uh, interview is that you're very focused on sustainability and the environment and health. You know, it's what we need right now. Yeah, thank you. I agree. Now, you, you, you mentioned that you make cider. Do you actually sell the cider or do you, do you just do the products that we talked about a few minutes ago? No, um, actually we start out as, uh, started out as um, hard cider makers solely, but we were selling it at farmer's markets and we thought, you know, every year we kind of added um, something to the table um, for, you know, it, it just sort of developed these other pantry products that weren't alcoholic, but hard cider has been since the, since the beginning and our cider, our orchard is um, planted uh mostly in hard cider varieties, um, things that we are either testing out and we have a test orchard. We also have a, a nursery growing things on for our orchard, but trying to um, focus solely on on apples that we think lend something to well, hard cider. Yeah, you know, this, um, yeah. we've, we've interviewed a number, a number of apple breeders. And uh-huh. You have to be really patient. <laughs> I mean, you really do. It took 20 years <laughs> really to, to produce one of these. Well, I can't remember what the apple was. It took 20 years to produce. Honey, wasn't it Honeycrisp? No, it was a combination of Honeycrisp and some, some the name strikes me as Greek mythology or something, or Roman mythology. But cider apples are very different anyway, aren't they? Yeah. By, by their nature. Yeah, cider apples are different, and they're uh, things in the orchard. Um, for like you know a variety of things depending on um, what we're trying to create um, and the end product you know because cider making has pretty much everything to do with blending so we want things that are uh, acidic we want some that are really high in sugars we want things that have nice tannins we want some with bitters you know and, and um, kind of really playing around with all these different flavors and when they ferment out of course that's when that's when the fun starts because we can you can test it and figure out if you really did any good, right? Yeah. Right, exactly. <laughs> you know, about, yeah. so far, what, so good. <laughs> about four years ago, I think, maybe even longer, um, we, along with a lot of our colleagues, food writers and broadcasters, had figured out that cider was making a big footprint in the United States. It's always, it never went away in, in Spain, of course, and, and in uh, uh, the west, northwestern France. But um, it, I started interviewing cider makers, and I really found it a very difficult group to work with. That's telling you. Well, and so, we, so we kept what, saying, you write it. I said, you know, how you write it. He said, no, you write it. You know? Why don't you tell her what you really think? Yeah, well, I don't know why. that we, see, You seem so entirely different from the people that we talked to and emailed back and forth. 
Uh-huh. Um, you're, you're, you, you, you tell things. I mean, they're very secretive. I don't understand. That's so funny. Why? Well, you know what? We've decided. It's, it's interesting, and I think you're probably right in a lot of ways. Um, and that might have something to do with, like, the quote-unquote cider industry. Um, which we really separate ourselves from. I mean, we're making, we want to make things that, that obviously people enjoy, but we don't want to make anything that's, um, I don't know, it's not newfangled. It's really just old ways and trying to revive them and bring them back because there's a lot to gain from having food and drink that's kind of in its most natural form. And obviously there's an art to fermentation and there are tricks and things like that and, and Jonathan actually wrote that first chapter on all the, the basics. So everything in that first chapter yeah. is like how to make cider syrup, how to make hard cider. You can write novels, I mean, not novels, volumes on yeah, no, I love hard that. cider. I was and so excited. And it was excited. only four pages. And, of course, it's very, very basic. But it is kind of our, our overall um, philosophy on the simplicity of cider making, and you can geek out as you know as long as you want, and, as, and go in depth as you want. But kind of in a fundamental way, like that should be able to provide people with an understanding. And there is no secret. Yeah, and then um, you say if if you don't understand this, um, here are some books for you to go check out. <laughs> right, exactly. Yeah, I and, love and this that. is like our basic overview. And you know, obviously, <laughs> he definitely loves to go into the into the nitty-gritty of it, but, um, you know, for the purposes of the book, it's like, give you an overview, like, what you can do if you have a jug of cider that you want to ferment. <laughs> yeah. No. You know, and, you know, it's like, why not share all of all of the things that we do? We didn't, nest, I mean, obviously the recipes we created, but the traditional products, we didn't make those up. Those have been being made for centuries and centuries. Yeah, and you sound like you're not interested in uh, selling out to uh, industry interests because we no. inter- we interviewed <laughs> an- Angry Orchard, and then the next thing I know, uh, who bought them? Somebody bought them. Oh, uh, someone huge, like huge. Uh, not like Bacardi or I don't know what uh, it is, something like that or something like that. Was well, yeah. Well, Angry Orchards owned owned by Boston Brewing Company. That's it. It was Boston Brewing right. oh, Company. Right. Yep. No, let, let me interject something here. I've been trying to get a word in edgeways, but you girls won't, won't let me. <laughs> when, when, I, when I was at university, one of the one of the probably relatively few constructive things we got involved in was we d- we decided there was a very popular clarinetist called Acker Bilk. I don't know. <laughs> he played the clarinet a little bit like Sidney Bechet. He was a jazz clarinetist. Uh-huh. And, we, and we wanted to have him come and perform for us. So we, so we agreed a price for him to bring him, him and his band from Somerset, which is the home of British Cider, to, right. Cam- to Cambridge to play. But one of the things that was required was an inexhaustible supply of what in England is called scrumpy. Scrumpy. Yes, what is that? <laughs> now, now, do you make scrumpy? We don't make scrumpy. I think you have to be in Somerset to make scrumpy. What is it? <laughs> it's, it's, it's hard cider. It's, it's really oh, it's, wild, it's really wild hard cider. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, and and uh, someone might correct me if they're listening to this and say, "What are you talking about?" But um, you know, there are different yeasts in the air and on the fruit and on um, the machines that press the apples and all that 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 impart their uh their language onto the 
onto the juice and into the fermentation. And, you know, there's, there, I don't know, you probably know Britannomyces, which is like this yeast strain that is very prevalent in, in English cider. And, uh, and I, I, didn't, I, I think I didn't that know when that I'm in way. England, I love to drink it, but I don't really want that in my cider. It, it's not American. It's different. Yeah. There's, yes. a, there's a really evil product in Britain, which you sort of refer to but don't mention by name, called baby sham. <laughs> and and ba- baby sham comes in tiny little split-sized bottles and pretends to be champagne, but it's really sparkling pear juice. Ooh. <laughs> and you, you Sounds refer- good to me. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you, 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 you reference the fact that some of the things that my native land does with cider are not really very appropriate. <laughs> well, yeah. you know, one of the... One of the um, things that from reading your book, we have this Asian pear that has never done very well, um, but it, it produces you know, just hundreds and hundreds of very tart, small Asian pears. Mm-hmm. And, and I thought, you know, I've been giving them, I, I gave them to one local chef and had him smoke them because he has a barbecue smoker. Oh, yeah. and, and, and his bartender was like, you know, this creative cocktail stuff. He made a, a, a cocktail out of the smoked pears. And, and but I, I have so many more. I really need to, to, I thought, why don't we just make pear pickles? Couldn't we? Oh, yes. That would be excellent with those, I, I bet. Because they're so crisp and dense. I'm sorry, I didn't hear him. I said they're so crisp and dense. I'm sure that they would be. Yeah, Perfect. I think they'd be good, and they're not very sweet. Yeah, I mean, yeah, you could even do it after they're smoked. Well, I mean, I'm not smoking them, but I could do them. <laughs> the way they are. Oh, I think they'd be they'd be incredible. Yeah, yes. a nice little pickled apple is delicious on a sandwich, or yeah, so, on a cheese plate or something. So simple. So, um, anyhow, so the first you explained very concisely what this first section that I was in love with about. How you you make things, and then you talk about pantry staples, which I loved also. Th- these are things that you have to have in your pantry, and right. yeah, and um, some of those give us some of those. I mean, the uh, crab apple jelly, for example. Right, exactly. So, I mean, everything in the book has something to do with with the juice, you know, with yes. apple juice, with cider. So, um, either you're taking it and you're using it straight up and boiling it down, or you're using it in a recipe. So, yeah, with the crab apple jelly, I mean, that color is incredible because the skins and usually the, you know, you can find a lot of crab apples where the the skin color bleeds into the flesh, and then you have this just gorgeous, like, red, shiny, um, delicious, sweet, and interesting flavored jelly. Yeah, it's such a classic. Membrio, um, that was another one. I, for some reason, never thought of that in relationship yeah, to... Yeah, doing apple Membrio instead mm-hmm. of the quince. Yep. Yeah, it turns out it's delicious. It's such a, apple, and it's so easy. Yeah, apple and yellow beet jam. I mean, mm-hmm. I also, I, I'm going to make the candied nuts because they stay at least a month. Yes. Yeah, those are those take just a second as well. And then that... Um, the yellow, uh, the beet and apple jam is my sister's recipe, and she is, like, unparalleled at creating, like, cheese tables for events and parties and things like that. They're just beautiful, and that's something that she's been making um, for years for those, so it's a really nice accompaniment to 
something, you know, the cheeses. And, now, how about and, the ultimate cheese plate? Now, that is spectacular. Yes, that's her work right there. Beautiful. Just It's so yeah. beautiful to look at, even. Yeah, and, yeah, so a mixture of colors and textures and flavors and, and you know, creamy with the tart, tart sweet apple. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's just so good. There's a... Um, a a farmer, a French woman, actually, in uh, northeast Pennsylvania, who raises um, very controlled amounts. I mean, you know, you're lucky if you're a chef to lay hands on uh, uh, her certain chickens and they're fed something specific. But she feeds her pigs apples. Mm-hmm. And, and they're a special kind of pork as well. Yeah, it's wonderful. We um, we kept pigs uh, for years and... It, Never ceases to make me laugh when you see a piglet running across the field with an apple in its mouth. You're like, oh, right. That's how that happens. That's why that's a thing. That's funny. So, anyhow, but then I told you that I think that the recipes here are really creative and wonderful, and that I'm planning on making some. Um, I, I thought I would never, ever make another kale salad, but this one sounds good. So good, yes. <laughs> <laughs> so your salads and soups you do, and um, you do you do drinks you do um, what else do you do here? You do mains. Mm-hmm. Um, you do things to beach that I'm going to try because I'm tired of doing them my way. Right. So yeah, they're all just little, maybe little twists on things that people already do. I mean, all these recipes came. Uh, from the way we cook anyway, just for our families and for our friends and um, things that we've... It's funny, I was looking through the book after um, we were done, and what I noticed was these um, kind of periods of my life reflected throughout the book. It wasn't like we are like, okay, how are we going to come up with 121 recipes? <laughs> it's like, oh, well, we always make, you know... X, Y, and Z for potlucks, and um, let's play with that a little bit and make it really more focused on the cider. I mean, obviously, we use a lot of cider because we have cider, but, you know, this was really a, a kind of a more mindful way of incorporating cider into the recipes that are kind of normally part of um, how we cook, which are generally, you know, we don't generally cook with recipes. So it's like that, that as well, kind of um, figuring out how to make something consistent and uh yeah it was very fun we had a great time doing it i loved it and do you cook this instagrammable <laughs> kinds of stuff like i'm looking at this gorgeous shot of buckwheat crepes with smoked farmer's cheese asparagus and mushrooms Would that's I one of my favorite it? photographs <laughs> 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 well you know what i um i am sure that people who have written cookbooks have had different experiences but we we felt incredibly lucky because I never the, the photographer that did a lot of the the major food photography in the book was out in California, and I never spoke to him before he um, before he took the shots and his and the stylist that he hired and everything, and you know it could have gone a really different way and it came back sort of the way I always envision my stuff looking if I was to have the linens that I wanted and the table surface that I wanted. And, but also just the way they put the food together was exactly the way I would want it to be. And, yeah, I was so impressed and so happy. And You know, I uh, loved this book. I really thought it was great. 
Oh, thank you. Okay. Thanks. And well, have, well, now hold on a bit. Before, before we go, we have to peddle some cider, right? We have to peddle, Please, oh, right. have to peddle some cider products. <laughs> go, go ahead, Nicole. Tell, tell, tell us how people can get some. Yes, well, of course, if you buy the book, you can learn how to make everything yourself. But if you don't feel like doing that, <laughs> then you can uh, um, go to our website, which is www.carsciderhouse.com, um, C-A-R-R-S, ciderhouse.com. And then um, we have a purchase page there so people can buy our pantry products. And if you are in one of the few states where we ship, you can go to a lovely hard cider um, store online called ciderinlove.com. Oh, my. <laughs> yeah. Does that and refer to you and your husband? What's that? Does that refer <laughs> to your relationship with you? <laughs> it's not our business, but it's perfect. Yeah, it, we definitely are cider in love. Um, yeah, and then we sell our hard cider to a handful of states, it's you know every state you have to get a permit, so it's a little slow going, but we're getting there. Um, and and otherwise, in Massachusetts, you can find us in many places, including farmers markets in Somerville, Great Barrington, and uh, and we're listed. We list all those on our website as well. Well, so, yeah, lots of ways. This is so much more than just a, a cookbook, listeners. Um, it's a touch of. A, wholesome philosophy in here, um, a, a go-to for understanding processes that maybe you don't know that much about, including wild fermentation, um, and uh, it's it's a charmer. So thank you for talking to us, Nicole Blum. Thank you so much for having me. And say hello to Jonathan. I, I will. Ruth Reichel's um the testimonial was wonderful. She says, yeah, listening to Jonathan Carr talk about apples is a lot like listening to poetry. <laughs> I love that. Yeah. So, yeah. And, and, yeah. Well, thank you again. And hello also and thank you to Andrea, your sister. Yes. Yes, <laughs> I will make sure she hears. Wonderful. Thank you so much for having me. Podcasting services for On The Menu Radio are provided by ASP Station, www.aspstation.net. Well, next stop, I mean, I have to admit, um, I, I seriously admire and adore this next guest, Neil Gus Gruskup, um, and his product. I wish, this is one of those occasions where I just wish I could pass you through the, the uh, wires and cables a taste of, of Tanteo's tequila. Um, it would get your attention in a big way. Because <laughs> it's, yeah, it's, really it's, it's, it's a very special tequila. Oh, it's it's spicy, and, and you can make a killer margarita, and you also could get the uh, tequila and in, in, uh, chili-infused um, salt. salt to rim your margarita glass. And it was a whole revelation. But, Anyhow, listen, listen to this wonderful but, but, guy, oh, 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 Neil. Before you go and before we forget, keep, keep it in the refrigerator. <laughs> oh, right. Be, because it needs a little calming. <laughs> But 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 Tenteo is it? There's no doubt about that. 
And so if you're a tequila fan and you're a spicy fan, you found found a new home. Jalapeno-infused it is. Okay. It's always an honor when Anne says, you do it. (laughs) You do it. Because I get some of the interesting ones. Welcome, first of all, welcome to On The Menu Radio, Neil Grosskop. And Neil, you and your partner... Hello? You and your partner invented something. <laughs> we did. Please explain. We make spicy tequila. So our company is called Tanteo. We make the best spicy tequila in the world that makes the best spicy margaritas around. Uh, we started the company 10 years ago, uh, really with the purpose of, of making and perfecting the, the spicy margarita. Uh, we To do that, we've gone straight to the source. We have a distillery, which is in the town of Wanakatlan, Jalisco. It's just south of Guadalajara. We get locally sourced jalapeno peppers from two different farms, bring them to the distillery, uh, chop them by hand, and then let those peppers infuse in our overproof Blanco tequila. Uh, we make different macerates uh, of peppers of various heat intensities with, with the tequila, and then I blend those together to make the final product, which is a spicy tequila, uh, but not too spicy and, and works perfect in, in a variety of specialty cocktails. Now, did you actually invent this category? or So spicy margaritas have, have, have been a thing for a time. I think I'd like to say we were inspired by the craft cocktail scene uh, that was emerging in, uh, in New York City as well as other major metropolitan areas uh, in the, the early 2000s. Uh, so I, I think we follow a, a, a long, uh, a long list of, of, of bartenders and creative professionals that have been making interesting cocktails now for, uh, for, for, for many, many years. Um, but we saw the niche of how we could perfect one specific cocktail and the spicy margarita and make it easier for bartenders of all skill levels, whether they're a home bartender, uh, aspiring to, to make margaritas for friends on the weekends or a, a top-notch craft cocktail bar at, at, at one of the hottest spots here in New York or San Francisco. But you you actually have three versions, three variations. We do. We started with Tanteo Jalapeno, uh, which is still our most popular in infusion. Jalapenos are one of the most popular pepper flavors around and work in a variety of cuisines uh, and a variety of cocktail applications. Uh, but we were uh, inspired by how bartenders were using and, and, and modifying Tanteo jalapeno margaritas to make other specialty cocktails, and that prompted us to do two other expressions. So we do a smoky chipotle. Chipotles are smoked jalapeno peppers, uh, and we, we source our chipotles from Chihuahua, Mexico in the north, bring them down to the distillery uh, where we infuse them in the same proprietary process that we use for our jalapeno. Uh, and then we also do our extra spicy habanero version. For that, we get habanero peppers from the Yucatan Peninsula in the south of Mexico, uh, bring them up to the distillery, and the same process uh, make a habanero-infused tequila, which is a whole lot more spicy uh, than the jalapeno, uh, but also gets a nice, beautiful tropical pepper flavor. Uh, habanero peppers are very flavorful if you can get past the, the piquancy or the heat intensity of them. Um, but I'm very proud of our habanero, which is, is a, a lot spicier than the jalapeno, uh, but it's still delicious in a variety of cocktail applications. I like the smoky idea. I think that would be a whole new, new dimension. But, but you, you mentioned before we came on the air, you mentioned the difference in the, 
the heat units, the Scoville units of the of the jalapeno and the habanero. Just to, to give our listeners fair warning, what what is the difference? Yeah, so the Scoville scale is is, is the scale and how uh, a pepper's piquancy or, or heat intensity uh, is 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 judged. I like to say piquancy as opposed to uh, to heat, uh, which usually refers to temperature or, or even the spice level. Um, I like to say a, 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 an apple pie can be uh, hot and it can be spicy, uh, but it's probably not piquant. It probably doesn't have that heat intensity. Uh, but the, the, the piquancy of a jalapeno pepper is around 5,000 to 8,000 Scoville units. Uh, and the piquancy of a habanero pepper is going to be 200,000 to 350,000 Scoville units. So it's about 20 times as hot. So don't shake too much in the glass. Huh? <laughs> Be careful with that one. But you know, I did a um, a guided um, um, what do you call it uh, tasting, tasting um, a, a Chile tasting, and um, we were encouraged to uh, give our description of flavors, but we were not allowed to use heat as one of the descriptors. And it was amazing uh, the, the different identities that came out in terms of flavor as opposed to heat. Mm-hmm. So, no, there's a, there's a lot going on there for sure. Now, tell tell us a little bit about availability in in around the world in in general, but in in particular, I guess in the in the Americas, which is where many of our listeners are, are headquartered. Yeah. We, uh, so we're available, uh, throughout the United States in all 50 states, uh, and that is our, that is our home market. We started the business in, in New York, uh, and our headquarters are here in, in New York City. Um, and we also sell in, in Mexico, um, by our, uh, by our distillery, which is just south of, of Guadalajara. Um, but we're available at all fine bars, restaurants, and, and spirit shops across the United States. Guadalajara is so pretty. It's a beautiful city. It is gorgeous. Uh, very, very, very old. Founded in 1542. So yeah. it's, uh, it's, it's got some history to it. Yeah, I like the cuisine a lot, too. Beautiful food. Yes. Um, what did you do before you were uh, spicing up, <laughs> firing up the tequila? Yeah, so my history was, was uh, goes uh, in a whole different direction. Uh, my I background, I was that. actually planning to be a, a Catholic priest. Uh, in, a, in my, in my, uh, coming out of college, that was the, that was the plan. I come from a big Catholic family and I'm one of the youngest, uh, youngest children in the extended family. We didn't have a priest in the family and I felt like, oh, that would be a, a good thing for, for, for me to do. Uh, my senior year in college, I, I decided that it ultimately wasn't for me. I wanted to get married and, and have a family. Uh, and, uh, kind of on a whim, moved up to New York. My first job was bartending at a nightclub in, in Manhattan's meatpacking district, and I absolutely loved it. Uh-huh. Uh, and from uh, you, you my, be, my kind of, you should be glad you didn't touch uh, the Catholic Church and your employer. Now, I mean, all hell is broken loose in Pittsburgh. Yeah, I can tell you. And now moving on New York and New Jersey. We're, we're going to be nice. We're not going to ask you if you're on a list. No. <laughs> But anyhow, so so um, so you you love bartending, and that's where that comes in. And that, yeah. So I, I and I, I think more so than loving bartending, loving hospitality has been my my real passion. And I think that was my drive to 
through the priesthood was it was an idea of, of bringing people together and uh, bringing a community together. Um, and I think a bar is able to do that in its own way. Um, and I really enjoyed that. Um, so one thing led to another from uh, bartending to uh, eventually meeting Jonathan and David, who were the, uh, the co-founders of Tonteo uh, in 2009. And uh, I, I got in at the ground floor. Um, they had an idea to make a, a spicy tequila. Uh, and I was a young, hungry, uh, wannabe entrepreneur looking to, to get into uh, uh, to doing something on my own. And uh, it, was a, it was a very New York experience to meet these two guys. And uh, we got along well and, and, and started doing business and making the spicy tequila company. Now, the, in- the interesting thing is that your concoctions, your your cocktail makings, if you like, s- seem to have a common thread, which is a mixture of the sweet and the savory. Can you can you explain what why that is? Uh, yeah, I think uh, you know ultimately uh, the, the the jalapeno margarita signature cocktail is, is definitely. Uh, you're going to get the, the piquancy, but also the vegetal notes of the jalapeno pepper. Uh, and it's, but it's in a margarita that's also going to combine that, that, that sweet, uh, as, as well as the acidic component to it. Uh, I, I think maybe a little bit more broadly, uh, it's a very common thread in a lot of Mexican cuisine, uh, that you're going to have both the sweet, uh, and the, the, the savory or, or the spicy. Um, our inspiration for Tanteo comes from, uh, food carts that would have fresh fruit with a pinch of salt, chili, and lime, oh, yeah. uh, to, okay. uh, to, to even mole sauce, a, a savory sauce that uses, uh, cocoa powder, uh, and, and, and chocolate in, in the sauce, uh, was, was, was also an inspiration. Um, but I think so I would go back to those two things, the, the spicy margarita being a play on spicy and, and sweet. Uh, but also uh, some, some deeper flavors in Mexican cuisine. Is there a meaning to tanteo? Yeah, the verb means, uh, so the verb is tantear. It means to size up, to approximate, to, to do something by feel. Um, oh, yeah. I, I describe it as a, as a, uh, a Mexican grandmother doing something, not tanteo, a pinch of this, a pinch of that. Oh. Uh, so we, um, you know, that was, uh, that was kind of what, what prompted us to, uh, to come up with the name. Uh, we're gringos making tequila, and we're, we're unapologetic about that. Um, we also thought it would be easy for uh, Americans to pronounce uh, and, and for a bartender in a loud, noisy bar to, to easily hear uh, that call for a Tanteo jalapeno margarita. Well, you've thought of just about everything, Neil. <laughs> did you take into account the shape of the bottle, too? I, we did. We I, understand, I understand. That's a, I understand. That's a really big thing. The bartenders need to be able to grab your drink by the by feel, without without actually exactly. having to look. Exactly. We wanted this to be a fun bottle to pour, and uh, it, it, it's, it's actually pretty central to how we designed it. Uh, we looked at a lot of uh, Mexican designed bottles, and Mexicans drink tequila in a very different way than Americans do. Um, in Mexico, you get a bottle of tequila with some friends. You usually sit on a on a short table uh, in a cantina, and you're going to drink shots of tequila. Uh, if it's bad tequila, maybe you'll mix it with squirt or coke or, 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 or club soda. But that's about that's about it. Everything else is there's not a real cocktail culture. 
So for us, we wanted to make something that was very bartender friendly and, and could be uh, could fit in a well behind the bar, could right. fit a speed pour, um, and the the ridges on our neck of our bottle make it easy to grip. Uh, even the, the the design in terms of the weight distribution of the bottle, it's very top heavy, uh, and that allows for uh, the, the the torque to be such that you can pour a whole bottle and not tire out your wrist. Oh, um, so we definitely <laughs> did a lot to make sure that the bottle is. Uh, is, 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 a, is a fun one to work with. Well, <laughs> we, we only have half a bottle left. <laughs> <laughs> now what's, what's in the future? There must be something else coming down the pipe. A, a man, a man of your uh, many parts must, must be thinking something else. Yeah, so we launched last year a jalapeno salt as the perfect way to rim uh, our jalapeno margarita. So we make a, a, a jalapeno salt that is uh, Mexican sea salt with dehydrated lime juice, crushed lime leaf, as well as some jalapeno pepper. Uh, we're going to look to do a chipotle and a habanero salt as well. Um, right now we do those salts just for uh, for the on-premise, so it's an 8-ounce pack, as well as we sell it on our website, tanteo.com, but it's a lot of salt. Um, so we're going to be doing a smaller version of that salt um, that we can attach actually to a bottle and, and, and sell those together. Uh, but we're always looking for ways to make it easier for uh, bartenders of all skill levels to make uh, great cocktails. Um, and I think with that in mind, uh, I've always toyed with doing a, a jalapeno margarita in a can would be something I would love to do. Um, the challenge is to make it delicious. And uh, I haven't yet figured out how to make uh, a, a best-in-class spicy margarita that is shelf stable. Um, so that's a challenge I work on. Um, looking to figure out how to uh, how, how to bottle lime juice without having it oxidized uh, and, and and keeping it shelf stable for a while is a is a long term challenge of ours. Now, where did the margarita originate? So there's various uh, various stories behind the, the 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 birth of a margarita. Um, what convinces me the most is uh, margarita is is uh, daisy uh, in in Spanish. Uh, the, the the daisy flower is called a margarita, um, and and it makes sense. There is a traditional cocktail called a daisy, which is basically a, a gin sour um, that uh, some uh, bartender decided to make this cocktail with tequila. And, and called it a called it a daisy, but there is uh, over a dozen stories of, of of different people who claim to have invented the margarita. Um, but one thing really central is the margarita was invented in the states. It was not invented in Mexico. Yeah, it doesn't. Um, I can't picture. I can't picture any Mexican self-respecting Mexican making a mixed drink like that. Yeah, <laughs> I'll tell you one thing is that I I had a. Um, a margarita party once when I was uh, uh, single and invited all my hip friends and it started at um, 7.30 and by 9 everybody had gone home. <laughs> so, so if you want a, a real quick party, that's a good way of doing it. <laughs> send, Indeed. Send, send, send down Send down tequila and there will be a party. <laughs> well, you are a delight to talk to, Neil. And um, uh, again, uh, listeners, you, you you really need to experience Tanteo 
um, tequila. It's um, it's it's really a cool drink. <laughs> I love it. Yeah, and it's a, it's a little bit of a mind-numbing experience. <laughs> yeah. So, and you need the salt too to make your perfect margarita. Thank, thank you. Couldn't thank, agree more. Thank you so much for joining us, and I'm sure I'm sure we'll talk again in the future. I appreciate it. Thanks. Y'all have a great day. Now, thank bu- you. Yeah. Bye bye. Such a soft-spoken guy with such it a spicy a product. Dynamite product. <laughs> and uh, and you can be sure there'll be something equally interesting and spicy in next week's program. So don't forget to join on the menu radio, same time, same place next week, or or, or whenever. The podcast moves your soul. Okay? Bye-bye. Yeah, there we go. (laughs) Bye-bye. Do it again.